Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. So this episode is brought to you by NorthPass Business. Against small businesses and startups, they often work with limited resources and reduce costs wherever possible. While this is sometimes practical, cybersecurity is one area where you don't want to cut corners. Creating strong, unique passwords for your company's accounts is a surefire way to defend your business from data breaches. However, with the number of personal and work logins we use daily, it's very easy to get password fatigue, leading to reusing the same passwords across accounts. So NordPass Business is a powerful password manager for organizations that removes the difficulty of generating and remembering strong passwords for you and your colleagues. Additionally, it allows for you to integrate single sign-on with your company's Google Workspace accounts and effortlessly create groups to share sensitive information across teams and projects. So see NordPass Business in action now with a three-month free trial by going to nordpass.com forward slash Pantera and use the code Pantera. This episode is brought to you by Basecamp. So Basecamp is a project management and team communication application that has been around for about 18 years, and it's used by thousands of companies today. Basecamp is all about simplicity. It is designed to give you and your team the tools you need to get work done. They have message boards, to-dos, file storage, chat calendar, and much more. Basecamp is built to help you in getting out of your way and let you focus on what matters. Again, you know, like when you're adding a bunch of people, there's a bunch of files that need to be shared. You need to be effective. And that's where Basecamp comes in. They actually are from the guys that brought to you 37 signals. And really, they help in making decisions simple and also effective. So go to Basecamp. Their pricing is simple and they give you the all, all really the features in a single plan. No upsells, no upgrades. Go to Basecamp.com forward slash dealmakers and try Basecamp for free. No credit card required and cancel at any time. Thank you, Basecamp, for sponsoring this episode. All righty. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Dealmaker Show. So today we have a very exciting founder. I mean, a founder that has done it so many times. I mean, I think that you're going to find his journey quite uh, inspiring. You know, one of his companies has touched so many lives. I mean, I, I, I'm a customer, you know, of, of, of this company. I mean, it's incredible. So I think that without further ado, let's welcome our guest today, Kurt Lorenzini. Welcome to the show. Hey, Alejandro. Good to see you, man. Thanks. So originally, you know, you were born there in the Bay Area, around the Bay Area. Uh, your father was actually one of the uh, founding fathers of uh, Silicon Valley. So uh, give us a little of a uh, walk through memory lane. How was life growing up? Uh, it, was, it was a little chaotic, I think. You know, having a founder, a technology founder as a dad was pretty intense. Uh, but I got to see what it was like firsthand as well. Uh, you know, he was one of the early venture capitalists and originally one of the early angel investors in Silicon Valley. So he had a lot of impact and I got to witness it all and learn from the ground up. Now, how was that for you? Like really experiencing that roller coaster, you know, two of emotions that he was say, going through, because obviously you, you, you were in it indirectly too. I was, and I, I don't think it was the emotional thing that's, that really uh, hit home for me. It was more the just awe of these, you know, what he would do. He happened to be part of a venture group where 
there were six partners and every month one of the partners would host a dinner at their house where the uh, they would have all the other partners over and then after dinner they would invite a founder to the home to pitch while they had drinks and dessert and so twice a year every year for lot growing up i got to sit in my living room uh, watch a founder come into my living room and pitch a company and then the founder would be escorted out and they would sit there for the next hour or two and debate the value of this company and whether this thing had any legs and so bef before i was even out of high school i had already seen you know dozens of founders pitch companies learn what vcs were looking for and it was an incredible journey now in your case engineering you know that sounds like the uh like the perfect, you know, like thing, obviously, you know, you're, you're talking about problem solving. You see that, you know, you breathe that you, you're experiencing that at home, but you did study quite a bit. I mean, you, you got the engineering from Duke and then Stanford, Berkeley, uh, Madison, Wisconsin. I mean, you, you were really into it, into the studies, Kurt. Yeah. Yeah. I think for me, it was a large part of both infinite curiosity as well as opportunities to advance my career. At each point along the line, once I graduated from my undergrad degree, I had opportunities to take new roles inside of companies if I had certain skills. And so I used my graduate studies to gain skills that would allow me to advance. And talking about advance or advancement or progress, you know, you when you when you graduated, you moved to Switzerland and you were working there for KLA Instruments. Uh, and I'm sure that, you know, being able to get outside of the U.S., you know, see different environments, different mentality, different cultures, I'm sure that that opened up quite a bit on the way that uh, that you thought about things. Uh, you know, honestly, Alejandro, that was one of the greatest experiences in my life. I, I was I worked for KLA for, you know, several years postgrads in, in the U.S., and then they have gave me the opportunity to go start operations in Europe, uh, in Switzerland. And I. Even to this day, that was perhaps one of the greatest things I've ever done. And both of my daughters uh, are themselves living abroad right now because my wife and I very much loved that experience so much that I've now got a daughter living in London and a daughter living in uh, Chile. That's incredible. That's incredible. Well, Chile, 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 great, great, great place. I got to tell you. So I'm sure that she's going to have a good time there. So Latin America, there's so much innovation. So, so now in your case, you get back to the U.S., you start working for Cisco, but this was your immediate, I would say, segue into the venture world. Because, I mean, your first company will come right after. So, so tell us about this. How did it happen? So I was working for Cisco after I came back from Europe. Uh, and remember, Cisco in the you know late 90s or the early 90s was still a young company. They hadn't, you know, they'd just barely gone public. It was very early days. And I was there during the time managing software development for them uh, when they went from 200 million to four and a half billion in sales over a four-year cycle. One of the fastest, at that time, it was one of the fastest growing companies in history. And got to watch what it was like to be part of a team that was growing so fast and accelerating. And at the time, you know, my aspirations had always been to go start my own company. And so I was sort of using that as a way to learn good management techniques, good leadership and hiring, uh, how to go fast and yet, you know, do things well. And uh, I ran into a friend from college who was working for Microsoft at the time up in Seattle, and I was down in the Bay Area. And we got talking about, you know, what the 
the next big thing coming was going to be. And uh, that sort of started our journey. We, we decided to start our company in 1996. And uh, I moved from the Bay Area up to Seattle, and I've been here ever since. So Point.com. So obviously, you know, this was the first company, first exit, you know, quite a quite an accomplishment, no? Because typically, you know, the first company doesn't turn to be like a, like a good outcome. But in your case, I mean, you you reached the finish line, you know, with flying colors. So what was the lesson that you had to learn from from the experience here with Point.com? And, and most importantly, I think that, you know, at this point, you were able to experience as well the full cycle of being an entrepreneur, of building, scaling, and most importantly, getting the company acquired, reaching that finish line, that promised land. Yeah, I think I learned a lot in that first cycle. I think, uh, you know, you think you know a lot going in as a first-time entrepreneur. And then even as much experience as I had sitting in front of venture capitalists and raising capital and hiring and managing people, it was another level, let's just say. So I think anyone doing it for the first time is uh, I can I can very much empathize with how hard that is and what hard lessons there are to, to learn to come. The the experience of point.com, um, we were the very one of the very first e-commerce companies in the United States, or maybe in the world, if you think about it that way. Um, you know, we were birthing right around the time Amazon and a number of these other companies were kind of coming to market. And you know, we were defining technologies, defining processes that would go on to completely change industries. In our case, it was the wireless industry. Some of the stuff we accomplished back then had has long-term you know, effects even to today in terms of how big and how successful the wireless industry has become because of some of the things we did back in the early to mid-90s. Now, one thing that is very interesting here is that once you actually wrapped up this chapter, you decided to go to the other side of the, of the table, not to the investment side. And, you know, it's very interesting that you did this right before your I mean, one of the biggest companies, I mean, the biggest company that you've done, and certainly one of the biggest success stories, you know, that we have seen in the venture world, definitely. Uh, but on this, going on this other side of the table, what did you learn about pattern recognition? What did you learn about winners and losers or, or not losers, but people that learn, you know, you either succeed or you learn, but what did you, what did you learn? Well, I, I became a venture partner uh, for a regional venture fund here in the Northwest for a couple of years. And that gave me an opportunity to see just sort of how they were valuing companies at the time, what they were looking for, what the market was demanding. And they also asked me to you know, step in and try and help save a couple of companies that were floundering and needed good leadership. Um, so, you know, it kind of, I kind of saw the gamut, but it never, I was never too far away from being operational. And I think the thing I learned about myself more than the industry is that I am at the time, at that time in my career, I much more preferred being operational than just simply being an investor. Nowadays, I'm just an investor, but I, and I love it. I'm glad I chose that path today, but it, it, uh, at that time, uh, it was an affirmation that I was better running companies than I was just strictly investing in them. So entering DocuSign. So at what point DocuSign comes knocking? The idea of DocuSign and, and how did you go about bringing it to life? Yeah. So during my tenure running Point.com, uh, there was an executive that I had hired, worked for me, and he had gone off to start another company of his own. And uh, we'd enjoyed working together. He called me up and he was stepping down. He had stepped down as the CEO of his company. He was on the board. 
and his board had asked him to sell an asset that his that they had acquired in a fire sale years before. And he's like, hey, I've got this great idea for a, a document management company, and uh, I'd love to work with you again. Can we, you know, can we talk? And so uh, Tom and I sat down and sort of his original concept, what he pitched me when he first talked to me, wasn't really the idea. It wasn't the one that was going to go. And after digging into it with him for several weeks, we came up with the idea of strictly focusing on digital signatures as opposed to being a big document management company and really making that our, our key focus. And so the the idea was sort of born out of an opportunity. And what, it, what ended up happening is his company, I ended up negotiating a purchase arrangement of a patent um, and the name DocuSign from his company. Uh, and I formed an entity in which they had uh, a small stake in, in return for giving me these assets. And it turns out his company failed completely. And the assets that we created, the, the small investment that uh, that company had in DocuSign turned out to be worth an enormous amount, hundreds of millions of dollars to his investors later on in the, you know, once it finally went public. Wow. So then let's talk about DocuSign. What happened next? Uh, you know, that was a, an amazing ride. That started in, in uh, 90, or sorry, 2002. And uh, I ran it until 2008. And I think that the thing that was interesting there is that, you know, we were breaking some pretty interesting ground. You know, not only were we doing things at the time, everybody was doing everything by fax and FedEx. If you wanted to get anything signed, you were still doing it on paper. And so you had this odd dislocation of enormous companies that were producing software technology to create electronic documents and an enormous industry of companies that were storing, managing, implementing, supporting back, you know, back office tools inside of corporations that were implementing against those documents. But you had this odd moment where the document exited the electronic world and, and then had to be physically signed and then had all that data had to be re-entered. And so our real aha moment for DocuSign was that if we could create an electronic bridge between those two major industries, the document creation industry and the document storage and implementation side, and do so with data, that was going to be the, the holy grail. We could actually charge for every document that sort of made that transition. And that's the backbone and still the business model today of DocuSign. So let's talk about the business model. How are you guys making money there? So the, the money is made by, think of a, a virtual FedEx envelope, but instead of having to pay for one that goes to every recipient and then have to pay for it to get back, we charge by envelope. We call them the digital envelope. So you can stuff one page or a thousand pages into a digital envelope, and you can send it to as many people as you want for one price, as opposed to having to send it out and back and you know send a thousand copies or five copies or whatever it is. So the the model is... Uh, per use of an envelope. And the kind of the breakthrough there from a business model perspective was rather than buying them one at a time, we asked people to buy for buy an allocation. So how much do you think you're going to use? Oh, do you need 50, 100, 1,000, 10,000, 100,000 of these things? The more you buy, the cheaper that they get per unit. Um, but by committing to them up front, um, you now have them and can use them indefinitely. Right, just and as, and once you start to use them up, you buy more. So that did two things for us from a business perspective. Number one, uh, gave us an incredible uh, cash flow because we got all the cash up front, 
um, and, and then took it all to deferred revenue on the balance sheet, and then only took it to active revenue once they were used. So number one, it was very cash flow positive. So as a young company, that was brilliant. Second thing we did well is that doing that, we had incredible visibility into our future revenue stream and revenue growth because we could project early. And that was a, something I learned at my days at Cisco. They did extremely well. And, and I emulated with my business model at, at DocuSign is to create a, a long, uh, if you can see into the future what your revenue is going to be, it gives you an opportunity to become a very strong public company because that you can always you know, deliver on the results that you project. So we'll get back to our conversation in a minute. But if you're an entrepreneur or a sales leader, you want to listen to this. Let me tell you about Wingman. Not, no, no, not Tom Cruise. Wingman is a conversation intelligence tool that helps folks like you coach and scale up their sales teams really fast, really easy. Now, I know you know scaling is not just about hiring. Getting the team up to speed can be the real speed bump. Well, Wingman can help you in getting that. It lets you build call libraries with game tapes relevant to every sales situation, complete with highlights and notes, and it's asynchronous. I mean, repeatable sales training engine. Not just that, Wingman even helps during sales calls with contextual battle cards and monologue alerts. The great thing about Wingman is that it plays nice with all your existing tools like Salesforce, HubSpot, Zoom, Teams, and Google. It even syncs up with Slack so you don't have to log into your CRM all the time for deal updates. So head over to trywingman.com to give it a try. That is T-R-Y-W-I-N-G-M-A-N.com. It's just the Wingman yourselves needs to really predictably beat revenue targets quarter after quarter. This episode is brought to you by Partner Hero, which provides customer service outsourcing that's built for the needs of scaling and high-growth startups. They offer flexible terms, fast onboarding, and the ability to scale teams quickly. Perfect for fast-growing businesses. I mean, let's face it, you know, you're all startups. You know, it's time for you to really stop trying to do absolutely everything. You need to get yourself out of the supporting box so you can actually focus on growing your business. So again, Partner Hero is flexible. They have quality assurance. They have offices around the world to really provide that help and support that you need. And if you're ready to bring in outside customer support help for your startup that feels like it's part of your existing team, then check out Partner Hero. Head over to partnerhero.com forward slash dealmakers to book a free consultation with their solutions team and mention that you heard about Partner Hero from Dealmakers and they'll waive the setup fee. And how was, you know, the early days of being able to secure as well contracts with the likes of Microsoft or the National Association of Realtors? <laughs> that was, well, I would say each of those was a seminal moment in the development of DocuSign. Microsoft, and they came in around the same time. We'd been sort of developing the technology for a while. Microsoft uh, had recently at that time, remember this is the early 2000s, released um, .NET technology. And they really didn't have, um, at that time, great uh, success examples. And without our knowing it, they uh, one of the team, the .NET team uh, was in the executive briefing center one day, briefing the senior management team at Microsoft. And Kevin Harang and Brad Smith were both in the audience that day, 
uh, Brad was the head chief legal officer at the time. And the the team saying, you know, this is Brad. Hey, there's this thing that do signs documents. It's called DocuSign. It's a local company here in Seattle. And they're one of the greatest examples of .NET. They're using every capability. They're using it beautifully. It's we, you know, we're we're going to start to do. We're, we're talking about uh, thinking about doing some advertising, featuring this technology as a best case uh, use analysis of .NET. And the next thing I know, I'm getting a phone call um, from Brad and Kevin's office saying, "Hey, we heard about this thing in the EBC. Uh, would you like to come in and talk to us about Microsoft using this tech?" And so. It was an inbound phone call, not an outbound phone call. And so they were already kind of sold on the idea of using it. And by signing up with us at the time, company of their size and stature, absolute 100% validation that it was working, that a company could trust it, that it was legally binding, and that they felt that they could run their national and international operations on it. It was a huge leap forward for us in terms of just technology credibility. Um, so that's that was Microsoft, and that was I think you know we could now point to them and say, hey, if you're even on the fence about using this, check it out. One of the biggest you know two or three companies in the world is using it successfully, uh, and they were great reference customers for us. The the National Association of Realtors was about growth because at the time we needed something that was going to really accelerate us into the into the zeitgeist, into the you know the thinking of the people large and microsoft of course is dealing with corporate customers for the most part not individuals so what the nar gave us was an opportunity to strike a deal to integrate docusign into their uh documentation platform and by integrating it in as a uh as a white label private you know um solution they did two things for themselves they allowed for the beginning of full electronic documentation to buy and sell homes um, made it so much easier for all of us. And I think most of us now have, if you've bought a home or anything of that nature, we've now electronically signed it. And that was because the NAR, you know, jumped on the bandwagon. But for us, it meant that we could integrate with a platform that was touching 3 million realtors every day um, and touch end customers every day. Um, and we didn't have to sell to those end customers just by integrating with their software platform, we got an opportunity to create a huge user base. And that was the primary engine of of growth for probably the first five years of the company was the uh, realtors. And how did you guys go about capitalizing the business? Well, we had uh, basically for DocuSign, it was all venture capital. So we had we had a little venture debt along the way, but mostly it was venture capital, and we raised a lot of money. <laughs> so you know, lots and lots of rounds, and and you know, the thing to also understand, Alejandro, is that it took quite a while. I mean, if you think about it, we started that company in 2002, and it went public in 2018. So it took 16 years to go from founding to public, and along the way, it was you know it was steadily growing. It was, a, you know, it was a slow growth experience for the most part. It was, you know, there were there were periods of rapid growth, but just really getting adopted into all of the systems that were out in the in the world, um, mostly financial and business systems, is what our, you know the core drivers were. But the capitalization strategy was just, yeah, we were just, we were running at a deficit for a long time. However, the the key, and this is that what's key still, is that 
our turnover rate for customers is very low. We once we get some a company to sign up to use DocuSign, we almost never lose them. And the, therefore, the lifetime value of a customer is extremely high. So even though we were losing money at first to sign up any new customer, the LTV was so high and we and the turnover rate was so low that as a long-term investment, it was always going to pay off. And so that's what you're seeing as, as continues to be the growth engine today. Now the company, as you said, you know, it went public. Uh, and what 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 was the what was the market cap at its peak? Do you recall? You know, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know that I remember what it was. It was trading at, you know, three hundred and ten dollars at its peak trading range. So I don't even know what that translated to into a market cap, but it probably eighty billion. I mean, it's it's probably or you know, seventy, it's probably down at ten or twelve now. Wow. So how I mean yeah. talking about talking about impact, I mean a stupid question here. How did it feel to be the to be the creator, one of the creators of a company that is worth seventy billion? You know, it's becoming more commonplace now, but I think back when I was when I, you know, when it was new to me, it was you didn't see a lot of these multi-billion dollar unicorns coming out. And it was incredibly fulfilling. I gotta say, I, the, the thing I'm most proud of though isn't this isn't the size of the growth of the company. It's that it's still considered one of the best places to work. So the corporate culture that that I established and and we established early uh, has been pervasive. It stayed, you know, stayed with the company. The the leadership maintained it. I'm super proud of that. Yeah, no kidding. A company with a right now we're eight thousand employees. So imagine, eh, imagine the impact. Unbelievable. Now, now in your case, Kurt, you know, it came a time where you realized that uh, you knew it, it was time to turn page. So what happened there? Mm -hmm. So. My experience as an entrepreneur, one of the things I've always espoused is the idea that as founders, we have the most valuable thing we have is our time and our energy. And so I did a funny calculation years ago where I realized that the sort of terminal value of a founder is reached at about year five of, of the company's growth cycle. That, it, that if you look at the future value of your involvement as a founder, um, it starts to diminish over time. Because you have your founder shares, you've probably vested your first few major uh, grants if you had grants of, of options. And any grants you're going to get beyond that are small relative to your those original stakes. And so at year about five, six, your best option is, you know, not only financially, but from a statistical success perspective, is to is to move on and start something new. And think like a VC. So there's here's the blending of the founder and the venture capital model. Whereas over the course of a founder's life cycle, if they can start four, five, six companies, there's odds that one of them is has you know greater odds that one's going to be a success. It's a portfolio model, and the same goes true is that you're going to have your set of your string of failures, which are just normal. You know, if you figure that 90 plus percent of founders uh, startups fail. So I, I applied that to my career. And so every five years or so, I would move, I would found a company five, six years in, I would move on and found another one. And so, you know, I've done four now, I'm moving on to number five soon. And it's worked out exceptionally well. I've had uh, three of the four of the companies uh, had exits, one uh, obviously incredibly successful, two others which were good to decent, and one complete failure. So as a batting average, that's not bad. Certainly yeah, one I'm yeah. proud of. And, yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, we'll see what comes of number five. So then let's talk about number three here, Primus Biovision. So uh, this one, you know, was, as you would label, the cash cow. 
So uh, tell yeah. us about this experience. Yeah, I wanted to try something different. You know, having funded two, founded two technology startups that required immense amounts of outside capitalization and, and capital to run, I wanted to test myself as a founder to see if I could build a business that was based on uh, cash flow rather than strictly investment. So something that got to be profitable very quickly, and then on its strict cash flow could grow and and morph and change. So. Primus was an uh, and and Primus was an opportunity in 2008 when I stepped down from DocuSign to take advantage of the fact that uh, Obama had just taken office. There was immense amount of money that was starting to move into the field of renewable energy. A lot of national security discussions around energy security, and so uh, I started a company that was that ultimately morphed into a an IP tech licensing company where I had only two employees, myself and one guy who was a senior consultant. And the licensing that we sold into the space just dropped cash in our pocket. We literally got to sit back and for years, just checks would show up as licensing revenue for that tech. And it was, it was lovely. You know, it was, it was very low effort, very low capital, uh, low CapEx investment, and it paid off our investors nicely. Now, after this, you know, obviously another another company, another success, you go into your next one, and this was Metabright, you know, but here what you really learned was being on the side of the table where, or the side of the coin, where things don't unfold the way that you had hoped for. So uh, what, what, what was the big lesson there? Because you're coming from this journey of incredible success, and then all of a sudden you hit a wall. I mean, how was that for you? I'm sure it was not easy. Oh no, it's it's a huge wake up call, but it's always one of those things that as founders we are we're always on the edge of those things. And and the funny thing about the Metabrite story is that the company was at the time it the time it imploded was an, an incredible success. It was growing 50% a month compounding. It was going so fast, it was just but but the the fatal flaw and the thing that really tipped us over is we had one that was riding on the back of predominantly one customer relationship. And uh, we had several others that we were working on, but that one was really the one driving and they were using the heck out of it. Obviously, it was going quite well. And then all of a sudden, they pulled the plug. And they pulled the plug because they found an alternative technology stack um, out of Eastern Europe that they could buy for pennies on the dollar. And it was completely random that they found it. It was unlikely that it would have happened the, the, the CEO of that company had just happened to have a dinner at a fundraiser and sat next to some young guy who was um, Croatian and started talking. And he's like, oh, I have a tech that does something similar to what you're doing. And sure, I'll license it to you for next to nothing. And the next thing I know, I'm getting a message saying, sorry, we don't need you anymore. We're cutting off your supply. And I had no time or ability to respond. And so the company folded three months later. Wow. So obviously, you know, like there, you know, you're dealing with uh, with something that you were not used to, right? And, and and I guess, how do you go about dealing with, what did you learn about dealing with failure and picking yourself back up? I think that's part of the founder's journey. I mean, you know, there, we have micro failures and macro failures along the way. I, certainly everything I did didn't always work out. Um, I think that the, the the hard part is the people, right? I've always highly valued the people that I employ and I feel like I let them down or, or the, the, they have been 
And that, that to me is the big, big part. And I'm, I'm glad to say that of all the people that worked for me in that company, I'm still very close to most of them. You know, I think we handled that shut down the best possible way. You know, we took care of our vendors. We took care of our, we took care of everybody we could take care of. Um, not everybody came away and obviously investors got nothing, but um, to the degree that we could maintain relationships. Um, so I think that was for me, the paramount thing is, you know, I'm, I'm a longtime founder. I, I value the investment I make in the people. Um, I, you know, it's not un, unusual for me to hire people from former ventures that I've run into new ventures and also to use investors, you know, across multiple ventures. And so there have been people that have made a lot of money with me and there have been people that have lost money. And, and even the people that have lost money in cases, have, I value the fact that they're willing to come back and work with me again. So let me ask you this now. What's next for you, Kurt? What's uh, Because obviously, you know, you have this uh, incredible, you know, energy, you know, you can't stop. So, so what, what, what's next, you know, in your entrepreneurial journey? So one of the things that I noted along the way is that I love working with other entrepreneurs. I love counseling them. I love helping them. I like, I, I just love the early stages of a company. I think of companies as having three prime phases. And I'm a I'm a solidly a phase one guy, sort of that napkin to product market fit phase. And so the other thing I noticed is that over all the years of consulting and helping companies and working with people, that most of the failures in the in the at least in the tech ecosystem can be traced back to the founding team in some way. And so my next venture is going to be around helping founders uh, find each other more efficiently. Um, and do so with purpose, meaning you, you, rather than starting a company and doing so with friends or friends of friends or people that have been recommended by friends, um, you're going to do it with a with forethought of the journey you choose to embark upon, and you're going to find co-founders that are purpose-built for the journey you're about to take and do so quick, you know, quickly and easily rather than having to um, struggle to find those founders. And that's true along the entire journey. So that doesn't matter whether that's absolute founders or throughout, you know, maybe you're two, three, five years in and you need to add another key component to your C-suite. And, you know, we have a person that, you know, we would have a person in our database. So it's, it's uh, called Founder Nexus. And uh, stay tuned because it should be, uh, I'll probably be launching it in 2023 sometime. Yeah, I love it. Well, definitely looking forward to that being unveiled. Now, imagine if I was to put you into a time machine, Kurt, And uh, I bring you back in time, perhaps to that moment where, you know, you were still, you know, working at Cisco and figuring out what would be, you know, that next thing for you and, and maybe like bring a solution, you know, to a gap that you saw existing and, and bring into the future. Now, if you were able to sit down with that younger Kurt and give that younger Kurt one piece of advice before launching a business, what would that be and why, given what you know now? It's advice I give. I learned it in the first cycle, which is to, when you have a new idea, spend an inordinate amount of time trying to kill it and pressure test it. Meaning, you know, you get, we all, we as founders always get excited about everything we, you know, the things we come up with and we can find all the reasons that are self-supporting to make sure that, you know, to keep us moving forward on the path that we're choosing. And one of the things I tell both myself and all the founders I counsel is to spend as long as it takes to be your own worst enemy, to look for every mode of failure possible 
And that includes looking online at companies that have gone before you and failed ahead of you, and then seeking out through LinkedIn or other means the executives that were in those companies and their current jobs and roles and asking them, hey, what happened? What, you know, reaching out to them actively and talking to them and saying, what happened in your company? Why did it fail? I'm trying to, I'm thinking of trying to do something similar and I'd love to hear about your journey. And once you assimilate the, the lessons learned from all of those sources of failure, not only will it open your eyes to the potential failure modes you hadn't considered, but if you cannot as a founder come up with a viable solution to every possible failure mode you encounter, you should not invest your time in it. You should, you should put it on the shelf and move on to a different idea. And it's, it's only the ideas that, that are uh, the best ideas can survive the crucible and are probably worth your time. And that, again, that's, being, that's your most important asset. That's what you should focus on. I love it. So, Kurt, for the people that are listening, what is the best way for them to reach out and say hi? Probably LinkedIn is my easiest public-facing uh, thing. So, uh, happy to happy to see people there. Amazing. Well, hey, Kurt, thank you so much for being on the Deal Maker Show today. It has been an honor to have you with us. Alejandro, it's so lovely to be here. Thanks for the time. If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value either from this episode or from the show itself, share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts or with selling your business, you can reach me at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to alejandrocremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.